And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. And thanks for tweeting at me and uh, leaving reviews um, and ratings uh, on the iTunes site. If you want to email me, uh, you can email themomentbk at gmail.com. And I'll read all of them. I'll reply when I can. Don't send me any movie ideas or script ideas or anything like that. But any thoughts on the show, any questions, anything you wish I would cover, themomentbk at gmail. Uh, I'd love to interact with you. And, again, please leave feedback uh, on iTunes uh, about how you feel about the show. It's, uh, it's great and helpful. Today's guest is Eddie Trunk. I'm real psyched about this. Um, I spent a good number of years of my life uh, as a heavy metal freak. I never looked like a metal fan uh, other than the jean jacket, uh, the painted jean jacket with Van Halen on it that I wore everywhere. But I was a giant metal metalhead, and the first time I saw that metal show, which Eddie hosts on VH1 Classic, uh, I felt like I was watching a kindred spirit who just kept living that life uh, when I made a different turn. I'm really excited to talk to him. He is uh, an entrepreneur, a businessman. I wonder if he thinks of himself in, in those ways. Um, he certainly doesn't present himself like that, but then if you, if you look at what he's got going, I mean, that's what he is. And uh, his story's inspiring. Uh, you know, he's a guy who didn't uh, finish college and ended up, I think, living a life that uh, he dreamed of living. So Eddie will be here soon. Uh, he's a host of a great podcast, and uh, and that metal show, and he's written a couple of books, and we'll talk about all of it in a few minutes. Thanks for listening. Eddie Trunk will be here soon. Check, 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 check. See, that's guys, that's a radio pro. <laughs> yeah. That's a radio Somebody pro. Somebody said to me before, why does everybody say check? I don't know. That See, there's a guy who's done, how many years have you been on the radio, Eddie? 31. That is a man who's done 31 years on the radio. He knows to say check, check, check. Now, no one was there to nod to you and tell you that that work no just trying to get a little level why does everybody count when they count in one two and then always stop before three because or four? the beat's going they're hearing the beat <laughs> I don't know why. Somebody it's probably because like too. someone did it on the monkeys a long time ago and they saw davy jones do it and they thought that's what you're supposed to do probably uh, i mean why did def leopard say you know gluten cleaving right who knows it sold them 12 million records or something like that you ever asked those guys what that meant why they yeah why it was actually was mutt campaign? lang that said that Oh, it's Mud who said yeah, it? Yeah, it's the his producer? voice. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Yeah. I knew you'd know. Yeah. See, it's weird. You stay with groups. You're such a loyal fan, it seems like. We're doing this now. We're rolling. Yeah, it's happening. All right. the check, just, check. I, love, I love it, Brian. We're just doing it. I already introduced you. Eddie Trunk is here, guys. Uh, and you're a very loyal fan. When you love a rock band, and I guess a sports team too, when you love a rock <laughs> band, they have a hard time shaking you loose. They Some have, though. A couple have. One, only one has. Well, yeah. I mean, one I, has, and, and it's the band that was the most important to me growing up that was my gateway into all of it, ironically enough. I know. Kiss, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, they might have shaken you loose personally, but you still wanted them in the hall. Oh, God. You I, still love them. And I'm still a fan. That's Absolutely. what I'm saying. I still do a yearly all Kiss music special, and um, despite. Uh, some some things those guys have done that people will never know about behind the scenes uh, with me or to me. Um, I mean, you allude to it in your book. Yeah, it's it's so it's so ridiculous um, when you think about it because people ask me all the time, "What's the issue with Kiss?" And it's really what's the issue with Paul Stanley because I shouldn't use it as a blanket thing. It's just Paul. Paul's a, sen a very sensitive guy. He admits that in his new book that just came out. Um, you know, he's, he admits in his book that he's a guy that's been in therapy since he was like five years old for it. So it's definitely an issue that he's had, and he's very sensitive. And uh, all that ever happened with me with Kiss was one day somebody said to me in an interview, what do you think about what they're doing now, which is having two guys dress as Ace and Peter and do that bit. And I said, I'm not down with it. I, it's where the line was crossed for me. I liked everything the band did, but I can't get into this. I think it's basically... Uh, impersonation act at this point it's a half a tribute band that was it you're off the ship and of course in the world we're in now brian as you well know with the internet and social media what i just said gets turned into um <laughs> gene and paul should should die in an anvil should be dropped on their head and their brain should be squashed uh that's just you know part of the world but, but also you do know that those two guys actually 
have a worldview that is uh, you're with us or you're against us. They're the one band in all my decades in this business and all the bands that I've worked with that there's you have a very hard time having an objective conversation about their career. Like talking about Def Leppard. You can sit there and talk to Joe Elliott and say, man, what were you thinking with this slang record or whatever you can. And they'll laugh and they'll talk. Same with Lars from Metallica. There's sure. a lot of guys like that. That, But but with with Kiss, it's here's what we're selling now today and you better be all in or you're out. And it's weird because let's say you're like I really and we, we won't just talk about Kiss here because I really want to talk about you and, we could. and your life. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I'm in this very small group of people who love the album, The Oath, uh, you know, The Elder. Yeah, I like and, it, too. I, you know, to me, like that song, The Oath, that starts that record. I remember when they played that on the show Fridays. Yeah, me too. And it killed. Uh, I was like, this is a new thing. They're growing with their audience. And of course, now they, they disavow that album pretty much. Right. It's funny. I always say this about Kiss. Every record they make, their newest record is always the greatest record they ever made in their career until the next one comes out, and then that one sucks. That one was terrible. They (laughs) didn't know what they were thinking. Exactly. But my thing with Kiss, which is funny, is that, um, as you said, I'm still very much a fan. I'm still one of the only ones that actually plays their music beyond rock and roll all night, especially in their home market in New York City. And I find it funny that, at least in their eyes, like 95% of anything I've ever done from the Hall of Fame on down, supportive, pro-KISS, is forgotten and swept under the... None of it matters. You're not down with what we're doing now. You're out. You're the enemy. So I can roll with it. I get it. It's fine. And and yet the thing is, um, and it's a, I think it's a really sweet thing in the way that you approach this stuff, you don't um, return they're like animus you're you still love them yeah there's times that i'll be honest there's times that i've said you know i've taken i mean it's not for there's a couple things that go on with kiss that are completely factually wrong with me there's a segment of their base and them themselves that think that i'm an original lineup only guy because of my relationship and friendship with Ace Freely and Peter Chris, and my but, relationship with Ace goes back to when I but signed them. You like Derek You like Derek Carr. My first a lot. book's dedicated to Derek Carr. I, I love Bruce Kulick. I went to all those shows in the '80s and the '90s. I loved everything Kiss ever did. But that doesn't work for the thing—the thing that they're trying to sell. So you can't change what, what's in people's heads. You just do what you do. Um, as I said, I'll always be a fan. But I think it's important when you're a fan of something that you you should be able to be objective and be honest about stuff if somebody asks you what you think. It's not that you're right or wrong or you're the authority, but it engages people in debate and discussion, and I love that. So if you you just said you love The Elder, if I didn't like The Elder, I'd tell you, Brian, you're crazy, and we'll have fun and we'll talk about well, it. That's the, I think that's and, healthy. And that's, and that's good to do. I mean, I think that, uh, and I wonder how much of... I've often wondered watching you because, you know, I first really like I obviously knew you on the radio and have known who you were for a long time just being around rock and roll in New York. Well, I remember when you worked in the music business and we kind of sometimes crossed paths a little bit. um, Yeah, when you you were in radio. Yeah. When I was in radio and I I left the a lot of people don't know about me is is I worked for a record label from 86 to 90. I was hired and eventually became vice president of Megaforce Records and signed some acts and was in studios and all that. But I so remember... So were Cheryl Valentine and Jessica Harley working at the label when Cheryl you were was there? never... I don't remember... Cheryl was not there, but Jessica was. Jessica was, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I started... I was the first... Shout out to Jessica Harley, Jessica. who is now living in Ireland. I don't know what... I didn't know what happened to her. Ireland riding horses. Well, I knew she was always in the horses, so that doesn't surprise me, so... And that was her her real name, Jessica Harley, working in the heavy metal business. <laughs> know, really, perfect. But yeah, so I worked... I had that whole other side to me, so I remembered, of course, when you signed Tracy Chapman and all that sort of stuff, and... But, what, what, yes, but what I, what I was going to say is that when I would turned on that metal show for the first time, mm-hmm. and I saw you on there with those guys, with your partners, um, I, I remember just thinking that... You were you had gotten to a place where you're almost like the purest level of fandom and 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 the way that you are able to talk about what you love really makes fans feel like you're just exactly one of them. I am. I mean, right. I, I, I've got to be honest. Um, I just went to uh, I've been lucky enough to travel around the world because the TV shows on in some other places outside of America. I was just in Colombia recently in Bogota. I went to Costa Rica. I went to Mexico. I went to uh, I went to Brazil, 
And a lot of those people come running up to me and they say, you know, Mr. Trunk, great rock journalist. And I, I just kind of bristle at that because I don't ever feel like I'm a journalist. or I just feel like I'm a fan. I started in this business 31 years ago, right out of high school for only one reason, to take music that I loved and share it with other people and try to help promote it and grow it. So to that end, I was a writer. I did some freelance writing. I did radio when I was still in high school. I worked for a record store for years. I worked at a record company for four years. I did artist management for a little while. Anything and everything that I could do, and I got to be honest, even now, all these years later, that's still the driving reason. The greatest thrill I still get is when I hear from somebody, whether it's a new band, and they say, I wouldn't have known about this if it wasn't for you, or if it's UFO Strangers in the Night, and they're like, wow, how did 40 years go by and I never heard of this? This is the greatest band. Now I'm getting into all their stuff. I love that. Right. You still love, love being it. like an ambassador for this music and connecting people to it. Respectfully. Here's the other thing, too. I always hated the stereotypes that came with heavy metal. I always, I love, people come up to me and they're like, when I first got on television, which is now 12 years ago, people would come up to me and say, you don't look like a metal guy. And and now listen, if that's your trip and you are into the all the regalia that comes traditionally with the metal look, great. I'm not judging anybody, but I have no tattoos. I have no piercings. I don't, and really never had ex extraordinarily long hair. Now I'm just trying to hold on to the hair that yeah. I got, <laughs> you know, and I just, uh, it, it's in your heart. And I think that what happens is, is when you, um, I, I like to, I like to not be, it's not by design. This is just me who I am. I'm a jeans and t-shirt guy and I don't want to put on a, a costume because I like heavy metal. But I also think by me being like this, it, it also is a good thing because one of the things that I think holds back this genre of music is that people think they've got everybody all figured out who likes it. You could walk down the street and say, that's a metal guy, that's not. And when you look at me, you'd say, that's not a metal guy. Well, no, you look like the other thing you are, which is a Giants fan. <laughs> Well, anyone has to do. I'm going to, man. You're killing you, me. You're is, killing they me. immediately know you're from Jersey. You're killing and, me. Uh, Giants fan. But, but about, I'll give you a quick one, Brian. The guy yes. like Mike Piazza, speaking yeah. of sports, sure. when he was on the Mets, Mike to this day is one of my best friends. I met him 12 years ago. He was at the height of his stardom here in New York playing for the Mets. I met him because he listened to my metal show in New York. Sure. He would hit the biggest home runs of his career at Shea, and he would come sit in me and play like King Diamond records. You know, he was so into it. Well, you wouldn't look at Mike Piazza and say he's a metal guy. No, well, I had, that my, I had that my whole life. I mean, uh, my musical taste has uh, has shifted, and it's very broad uh, now. And, you know, I really love singer-songwriters, and I spend most of the time that I listen listening to that or listening to alternative music. But um, I have spent an enormous amount of my life as a metal Freak. Hey, you've I, texted me about Riot. And I mean, but not just Riot. Know. You know, I remember, um, I mean, growing up, you know, 1979, 1980, uh, when Van Halen 2 and then Women and Children First came out, that was my whole life. And my friends and I was only about that. Then UFO is one of my favorite bands of all time. That's one of the reasons you, and people don't know that band. Um, they're in a, really one of the great a British rock band. Melodic even, hard rock band. I mean, they're a cross to me between Bad Company, uh, you know, to me, Phil always sounds like uh, Paul. A lot One of the most like underrated singers and writers ever. Uh, so I understand the pull and the allure of that music. And what I was going to say at the beginning of this about loyalty is I was such a, uh, you know, I knew the names of every band member. And I was like when Pete Willis left Def Leppard, a part of me wanted to not like that band anymore. Mm -hmm. But you kind of ride it through somehow. Yeah, You're, I do. <laughs> you don't draw those lines for some reason. No, I mean, I do, though, when I feel that I can roll with a lot. You know, knowing these guys as well as I do and so many of these artists, I know all the craziness that goes on behind the scenes is you do as well having worked in the business you know that sometimes some of these guys just can't cut it they can't hold it together they've got drug issues alcohol issues so i understand when a lineup has to change but the line that i draw is when that new member coming in if they're impersonating as is the case with kiss that's when I feel, oh, you got to be kidding me with this. Right, wearing but if the they uniform came in, the If pain. they came in like Eric Carr did, like Vinnie Vincent did, like Bruce Kulick did, who, of course, didn't wear makeup, but if they came in and were their own people... Now, by the way, just to, not to dwell on the Kiss thing, but I don't begrudge 
the guys who are in KISS now, Tommy Thayer and Eric Singer, at all for that. It's a gig. They're getting a nice payday. If they didn't do it, someone else would. I'm just saying as a fan, I'm out on it. Yeah, you, and you're willing to sort of talk was, about yeah, it. Yeah, no problem. Uh, but, but I don't hold it against them for doing it or anybody who is okay with it. By the way, there's an incredible article on Grantland by Chuck Klosterman. Do you know? I know who Chuck is. Yeah. So did you read this thing when the when Kiss was going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame? He wrote like twenty thousand words. Like I think Kiss I did and on his fanaticism just like a few months ago. But it's really he's a freak like you are. For yeah, the I got to tell you, the Hall of Fame thing really was. Um, I mean, having fought for it for so long, as well as other people did, of course, too. I mean, uh, and I went and I sat at Ace's table and it was great to see it happen. But just the drama that went on around that and the couple months leading up to it was just, I don't even know if the whole thing was worth it in retrospect. It was, well, I feel that way about, you know, uh, the fact that when Van Halen came in. Same thing. Only yeah. your two, you know, the two guys you're two closest guys, to probably. Two guys not in the band were the ones at the time that. Yeah, I mean, except the two guys, I guess you, you're closest to out of the yeah. Well, whole Michael Anthony, I just did a great podcast with Michael. And he did. He, I love him to death, and he's such a good guy. And he was real revealing in it about his situation with Van Halen and what went on. And I love Sammy. You know, they're just two regular guys in my view, and I really like them. I like them as people above and beyond anything. But um, no, like that to me, when Michael Anthony Sobolowski is out of that band, that uh, that killed it. And I I know. You know, I, I've uh, been around them. I know David for a long time. And I went to see the shows, and I thought David... I was did. with you at the show at the... Yeah, and I thought we were both together at yeah. the Cafe Wash Cafe Wash, the launch for the last record. Klosterman yeah. was there, too, that night, actually, uh, standing over on the right side of the stage. But not having Michael Anthony in the band really hurts. I, I would agree yeah, with that. Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, I think Wolfie's a talented kid, but, you know, Michael's such a big part of that sound. Listen, you talk about this stuff all the time, and I could talk about it with you forever. That's why I think I've watched every episode of that metal show. But what I'm really interested in is how, you know, your story, because people are always asking me um, online on Twitter, they'll tell me like, hey, uh, I have this crazy dream of what I want to do with my life, but I can't figure it out. And I mean, uh, your story, I think, is just incredibly inspiring because you're you're sitting where you want to sit, aren't you? Uh yeah, yeah, without a doubt. I'm, I, I have to kind of yeah, explain this a little bit because to somebody just looking at it from the outside, yes, I mean, I've got, I've got no complaints. I've got two national radio shows. I've now got a podcast. I've got two books out. I've got a TV show. So you could say... You have fans who show up when you make appearances. Oh, yeah. I can do signings. It's, it's, yeah, it's great. I, I'm not, not complaining at all. But here's the other side of it. Um it's insanely frustrating for me on the other end of it because there's so much more I want to do and I want to be doing. And I am still incredibly marginalized uh, because of the music that I like and that I'm known for because there's still that stigma against this music. What I mean by that is that my radio show, my syndicated radio show is on about 20 markets. I have two top 10 cities, so that's super important, New York and Boston. But I still can't get other radio stations in other You mean to give it a try, even though the show... For three hours a week. They'll have me on as a guest. They'll tell me that they love that metal show. But to play the show for three hours a week anytime they want, oh, we couldn't do that. We wouldn't touch those bands, you know. And then they'll tell me how much they love that metal show. I'm like, don't you understand that that metal show came from this radio show in a million ways, I could tell you. It's amazing. And on the TV side... Go ahead. Why can't you just do the show on the internet and own it and well, distribute you can, it that way. You can put it out as a stream in a lot of ways, and all the stations I'm on do stream, yeah, you stream it. But in order for to it, it right? to, to grow and really be profitable and to make impact, it has to be on commercial broadcast radios because it has to have commercials in it. And you think the corporatization of all these stations is what made it impossible? Or you think no. they just don't... They don't want you to free for the fact that you program They're it. They're petrified of anything from ACDC that isn't You Shook Me All Night Long. They're right. petrified of anything from Metallica that isn't Enter Sandman. And I think that it's a huge problem in radio. Um, I understand that you have to 
play the hits to some degree, but I also think that in the world we're in now with technology, when everybody's walking around with 3,000 songs on their phone and streams and satellite radio and what have you, you have to be doing something different and unique or you will be replaced by this, this computer, which is happening every day. Yeah, the reason I'm going to tune in and listen is I want to hear what you have to say about this music and I want to know what you're interested in that night. Yeah. And, and, and you know, you'll get, you're the only person in the world who's had Axl Rose drop in for yeah. two and a half hours. And I'm, I'm grateful, and I don't mean to sound like I'm bitching at all because I'm extremely grateful and I worked extremely hard to to build what I have, but I, I wish that I could be doing so much more. On the TV side with that metal show, it's incredibly frustrating because as grateful as I am to have that show, and uh, I've been on that channel for 12 years, I've had the show for five before that, I was a host, VJ guy, whatever. The channel was much smaller as far as the homes it was in. But it's still an enormous struggle because I'm on a channel, VH1 Classic. Very important to note, not VH1. People make that mistake. VH1 Classic, which is a baby channel that has a minuscule budget. And as a result, this year, the year 2014, we've only done 12 episodes new. And that's all we're doing for the year. So I have limitless opportunity, as you can imagine now. Iron Maiden, hey, let's do an episode on my plane. Sorry, network doesn't want to do it. We're not in production. We have no money. And that is unbelievably frustrating. So um, I'm grateful, and I'm, I'll do that metal show till they'll, as long as they'll still have me forever. But there's so much more I want to be doing especially at this point with what I built, and I just can't find those doors to open to me. Despite the fact that you have this loyal this loyal audience, is it somehow that that audience doesn't seem to advertisers to be, like, glamorous or um, uh, uh, wealthy? Like, is it that their perception of who those people are limits it, do you think? No. Um, what do you yeah, What do you think? I don't, because those people, especially my audience, is like 35 to 45-year-old men. <laughs> Who doesn't want that as a demo? Right. Uh, that's 90% probably of my audience. I, I just think that a, a lot of people say to me all the time when it, it comes to the TV show, well, why don't you go somewhere else and do it? Or why don't you do a show like that somewhere else? Now, I couldn't go do that metal show somewhere else because VH1 owns the name. But I could certainly do variations on it and do an interview show. I have a million ideas. Unfortunately, the truth of the matter is there isn't a ton of TV networks of any kind in this country looking for a rock and roll talk show. I'd love to do it tomorrow. I have a million ideas. Um, I can't even find an agent to rep me. I mean, I've been on TV 12 years. I've got two radio shows. I can't find an agent because an agent is going to rep me when they feel they can commission a, a lot of money. And I've had a couple agents, but, you know, you're the 50th on the call sheet that day. That must be super frustrating to no, you. No, I can't. I can't. I do it all myself. And every single thing I have in my career, I got on my own. And I'm not saying I don't want to work with people. I'd love to. And I have a million ideas. And But I can't. It's just they, they pigeonhole you as this guy. And. Here's the funny thing. When I was at VH1 Classic before that metal show, and I've got the tapes to prove it, I interviewed Mellencamp, Dick Cavett, Gloria Gaynor. I mean, the most wide net. I love talking about other genres of music, and I know a little bit about a lot of it. Of course you do. But but I've become, and yes, it is my passion, the hard rock metal thing, and it's just limiting. It's it's very hard. But I, I get that. Um Though I do think that the way the world is now, there's got to be a way that some digital agent would see the opportunity to take... You have 100,000 Twitter followers. 200. 200,000 mm-hmm. Twitter followers. I was cutting them in half because uh, I think half are bots. But no, you have you have 200,000 Twitter followers. That's a real commodity in this world. And uh, I, have you considered trying to just do the show, a version of an Eddie Trunk metal-focused show somehow directly digitally yeah and, uh, i just need some, some i just need some direction uh the the ups and downs of the internet is obviously there's limitless opportunity but you also need somebody that you, you know you need I, I think you need 
you need a way to make it stand out. For instance, when I just launched a podcast a couple months ago, I had been getting asked about a podcast forever. I just didn't want to throw something out there that didn't have a chance to stick up above the crowd a little bit. I mean, yes, yeah, I have my name and I have my platforms to promote it. So this company, Podcast One, which does huge podcasts and markets them and sells the advertising, they came in and they said, we want to do it. And then that made made sense to me. So if I can find somebody, I'm, I'm horrible with the... Um, technical side of things. I'm horrible with when it comes to navigating the internet and uh, editing and digital production and things like that. Horrible. I'm I'm the guy, I can get you the artist and I can do the, a great interview and I can host the thing, but I need a partner well, that can the, do the other stuff. All right, well, someone listening should is that partner because that's a, a I mean, the skill set you have is a very rarefied skill set now to be able to have, because you've put in years to have the relationships and to learn how to do that. Uh, there's no question that uh, there's a way you can take what you do and find someone to help you put it on online. But I want to back up because how... And by the way, real quick, yeah. Brian, I want to broaden it out, too. I don't want to... I want to do more than just metal. I mean, I, I, I know that that's... Metal and hard rock is my 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 target base, so to speak, and that's where the... But I, I want to do more than that, and I feel I can do more than that. I just need those opportunities, and I have in the past. Um so, yeah, it's just finding finding. But a that's believer. what I want to ask you. But here's what I want to ask you. I know you can do that. There's no look, You can talk about anything. You're one of those people, put a mic in front of you, you can talk about anything. There's no question about it. You could do an interview that would be incredibly effective with a lot of different people. But the thing that you sell more than anything else, I think, is passion. You have passion, and then that passion leads to you having insights that other people don't have because you love the thing so much that then you analyze it differently you're famous for having an encyclopedic knowledge about this music. Are you, like, I understand the business reason you might think you want to broaden it, but do you love other music? Are you obsessive about it in the oh, same rock, way? Rock. I'm not telling you that I'm going to see you do a country show or hip-hop show or a EDM show. or a, No, rock, hard rock, metal. What I'm saying is there's people that, see, metal means so much to so many people. To some people, metal is Bon Jovi. And to some people, metal is Slayer, and right. there's a lot in between that, and even beyond that. Um, well, I don't even think of UFO as a metal band. No, they're not. They're a hard rock band. That's a hard, a, a melodic, melodic hard, hard rock, rock band. band. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that's yeah. what they are. Yeah, yeah. But so, so that's what I'm saying is, is if you just throw the blanket term out there, metal that can mean so much to so many people. No, but but rock for sure. Like, and I've had so many people throw things at me. Steven Adler called me up once. He's like, "Dude, we're gonna bring back." Don Kirshner's rock concert, but it's going to be you doing it because you're the new Don Kirshner. And I was like, bring it on. Let, let's find an outlet to do it. Let's do it. But I don't know if you want to finding... take your, you know, really direction from junkie no, drummers, no, no, no matter, no, 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 no matter how saying, great, <laughs> no matter how great they are at the drums. And I'm not saying, and I'm not saying that um, it's, it's just Stephen. That there's been ideas like that as well. Uh, and I love Guns N' Roses, and uh, I'm sure I think Stephen's clean now. He's no it's longer eight months, no longer a junkie drummer. Well, every time I see Stephen, and I don't mean to make light of it, and I hope he's doing great, but every time I see him, I I'll see him once every year, twice every year, and I'll say him, "How do you do? How you doing?" He's like. I'm three months sober. And I go, Stephen, when I see you once a year, you're supposed to say to me, I'm a year and three months sober. I'm two years. The idea is to accumulate. So, um, But I saw Slash the other day, and he told me he's coming up on like eight months. So hopefully Stephen's doing well. You Slash, think, Stephen is. Not Slash has been great for years. You think that they'll ever play together? Oh. Axel and Slash and Izzy? I got to tell you, if you asked me this a couple years ago, I'd tell you no. But now I do. I do. I don't know when. I'm not saying it's imminent. I just feel it. I just feel. And I've, I have some sources uh, that have said to me that very, very, very deep behind the scenes, there's some things put, being put into motion. Now, whether if you think about it, if you think about it, Brian, there's only two factions that have to be mended, Axel and Slash. Izzy gets up and plays with yep. guns, the current guns, and Slash. Um, either drummer would do it in a heartbeat. Duff just did 10 shows with the current sure. guns. So it's down to two guys right now. Well, yeah, it's people want to see the guy wearing the hat next to the guy dancing like a snake. That's what people want to see. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would go, I think I'd go anywhere in the country if they were going to play. 
A lot of people would. I think that the reason, and the reason why I say I think it would is I just think it's too big to not happen at some point somewhere. You get the stadium tour right away? Oh, yeah. Stadium tour instantly. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about a tour, but it's definitely a stadium show or two in America, and outside of America, probably a tour. You don't know that they would tour, or if they were touring America, you think it might be arenas, a couple of stadiums. Maybe, yeah. I think you launch with a couple arenas in big cities and maybe do a couple stadiums. A, you, a couple, um, launch with stadiums, do a couple big And arenas. then all these years in, the idea of that is still exciting to you. Oh, sure. I and mean, you I, really I, want to see it, right? Well, and, 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 and the fact that I know uh, so many of these guys now personally and know the dynamics and know things that... If somebody tells me something and they say it's off the record, I keep it off the record. I'm very... You know, I've sure. built the relationships I have doing that. But there's things that I know, and I, I think that... Um, you know, I love that side of it too. I mean, I love the music business, and and I love that end of it. And I love hearing about okay, who's who's the agent going to be, and, and okay, who's the manager going to be, and who's managing this guy as this manager, and you know, navigating those waters and seeing. I, I, I spent a lot of time with Aerosmith, one of my all-time favorite bands, and I just saw him recently. And to go backstage in an Aerosmith show and just see how that machine works. Every guy has their own dressing room. Steven has management separate from the rest of the band. And then, you know, you walk down the hall and there's Tom's room and there's Brad's room and there's the production room. And there's, it's like, but guess what? When they get on stage, they'll still kick anybody's ass. See, that stuff doesn't make you, that, that stuff doesn't bum you out. No. Uh, seeing the mechanics of it. You, I love you it. are fascinated yes. by the whole thing. Yes. What, what do you, and have you always been like, even as a, as a kid when you were listening to this music, did, did you want, you knew you wanted in in some way, right? You wanted to be around it in some way? Like, because you went to college and quit early. <laughs> really early. I'll tell you a quick funny yeah, story happened? about that. My son, who is seven, said to me the other day, he said, uh, he said, Dad, he goes, uh, did you go to college? And I said, for a very short time. And he said, why? Why did you leave? And I said, well, I was never really good in school. And uh, I said, I got kind of got the job that I wanted to at that time and I figured let me get out and chase this job because the job I wanted was hard to get and he said what job is that and I said well you know what what daddy does for a living you know I talk on the radio and I'm on TV and he said yeah dad what's so hard about that all you do is talk (laughs) (laughs) and I was like how do you answer that yeah you're pretty much right Um, but the truth of the matter is yeah I was never a good student Uh, I only had an interest in school any topic in school is if if it had an interest to me, and that was music. I mean, I had a history teacher who I just reconnected with recently, who just who who is a writer now. He's retired from teaching, but he's a writer. And he just wrote a book, and he asked me to write the forward for the book because he remembered me in high school being this guy who would who would fight not physically, but fight and argue back then with people about bands that were good or bad and that they shouldn't shouldn't listen to. And he's like, it's it's as a teacher, he goes, as your your teacher back then, it's amazing to me to see how what you've turned well, that into. Yeah, why why do you think it mattered? Like, do you remember when it started mattering that much to you? I'll tell you the first time I experienced rock music, and every time I talk about it, I get the goosebumps, and and I got them back then. Um, I was into pop like anybody as a little kid, Partridge Family, and what have you. My kids are into pop. I just took them to see Katy Perry. Everybody says to me, you got to push them into metal. No. They'll find out what they're into when they're into. I'm not going to force them into anything. Because when I was their age, I was into the Partridge family. Bobby Goldsboro, Bobby Sherman, you know, pop stuff. 1910 Fruit Gum Company, whatever. So the first time I felt rock music, I would have been about 9, 10 years old, backseat of my parents' car, AM radio, I think it was WABC here in New York, and a song by a power pop band called The Raspberries come on, comes on called Go All The Way. Now, if you don't know that song, it starts with very heavy, distorted power chords into very melodic sort of thing. But Eric Carmen, right? Eric Carmen, yeah. But it's, it's, it's total power pop. But if you hear this riff, uh, this big distorted guitar riff, that's when I first, and I was like, whoa, what's that? And I became, as a little kid, this freak for The Raspberries. Weirdest thing to be the gateway, but that's what it was because that's what I heard. And again, if you if you find that song, go all the way by the Raspberries, you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, so that lasted a couple years, 
And then my friend turned me on to Kiss Destroyer. Right. Now, did you go back to T-Rex at that point? Because it, they were sort of the progenitor I of like that whole T-Rex sound. I like T-Rex now. But then you didn't no, realize... didn't make that connection. You didn't realize the Raspberries and Kiss were, were like, sort of coming from this no. thing that Mm-mm. those guys did. No, and unfortunately, so then, to this day, T-Rex and Bolin are only known for Bang a Gun getting it on here, but they have so many other great songs. Oh, yeah, that, those cut what they make... Two albums? Oh, there's a ton. Three, three original albums? Mm, I don't know. I, I, Rhino reissued the catalog, and there's like right. 12 titles recently. So I don't Because you have the Mark Bolin stuff, yes. and then whatever. But but anyway... So then you heard Kiss. I, I got... My friend said to me, check out this band. This record's called Destroyer. I bought it at a record store, dropped the needle, Detroit Rock City, looking at the cover, and game over. The the Raspberries were on were in leisure suits on the cover of their record. Kiss was Kiss. <laughs> game yeah. over. So the, my whole world for years became obsessed with Kiss. But here's the thing, Brian, and this answers your this long winded way of answering your question. When I was in high school, seventy eight eighty two, it's four years, right? I graduated in eighty two. You couldn't have more and more uncool period to like Kiss. Right. Think about what Kiss had then. Unmasked, pop record, Dynasty. I was made for loving you. Yeah. Disco Desmond, song. Desmond Child wrote that song, right? Yes. Your 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 record, The Elder, which most hated. Yes. Songs written by Lou Reed. I mean, yeah. you couldn't have a band. People now, Kiss has become such pop culture. People can't comprehend that at that period of time. You were ridiculed for liking So Kiss. what did it mean to you? to? Ha- did you have to stand up and defend yes. them? Would you argue on their yes. behalf? Oh, my God. And that is how I'm answering your question, is that it inspired me to say... Wait, his friend Don LaGreca from ESPN just walked into the studio to wave. Hey, Don. I love Don's a fellow metal guy, too. Hey, Don, how's it going? And he doesn't, see, he doesn't look like a typical metal guy, but he's a metal guy. That's what I mean. That's part of what I'm talking about. All right. Uh, Don? We're going to continue on with the show. Good to see you. Yeah, he doesn't look like a metal guy at no, all. That's my point, yeah. But but anyway... He looks like that teacher you were just talking about. Exactly. <laughs> but that's the point. But but anyway, it was like I had to fight. Like, I'm not joking. I would wear a Kiss shirt to school, and I'm, I'm 6'2", a pretty big guy. If I wasn't the size that I am, people would want to physically beat my ass for liking Kiss. So it forced me to... And here's the other thing I found out. I hate phonies, and I hate people that just portray to like something because it's cool and puts them in the in crowd. I hate, I like what you like, but I hate when you fake it. And um, there was so much of that in my high school at the time. There were guys walking around with Santana and Neil Young shirts but couldn't name you two songs. Right. And then they'd, beat, they'd want to beat my ass for liking Kiss and then I would find out that they actually had Kiss records, but they wouldn't admit to it. And I hated that. So that really is what formed me saying, stand up for what you're into, good or bad, popular. I don't believe in guilty pleasures. If you like something and you feel that it's, it's great, good, then like it. Right. Well, yeah, like I, I, I can understand that. Um, it's fun. I went to graduate high school two years after you, and, and somehow where I grew up, even though people w- liked punk and new wave music um the fact that we liked hard rock and heavy metal was okay like at my school it was fine i mean we might have been a little bit you know considered a little bit uh, uncool but it wasn't like we had to really defend it i remember i got this van halen jean jacket this incredibly and i wore it every day and so yeah a couple of guys maybe on the football team were like uh nice rock and roll uniform you're wearing mm. but uh and we had to wear like a sport coat so i have to put it on like kind of over the sport coat and it was uh yeah, actually, I guess it was pretty hard, in a way, to support, especially looking like I looked, to support Van Halen. I didn't go to I didn't go to my prom. Uh, I didn't do well in school. I didn't go to any of the parties. I had friends. You know, I had a group of friends and all that, but I was I was not in the in crowd at all because of my tastes in hard rock music. And and here's the other thing: I never smoked and never did drugs. And that was the other thing. I mean, a lot of the partying was about putting on uh, Neil Young decades and getting high. And that's, you know, that's what they, my school was into. And so wait, what else were you listening to? Were you listening to Cheap Trick? Were you listening to Angel? Like, what else did you Kiss, uh, after Kiss, the next band in really shortly after was Aerosmith. I had the live bootleg poster on my wall and to this day love Aerosmith. But then you didn't pick up a guitar. Never played an instrument. Tried to play drums, took lessons. How did you figure out? Because, you know... Uh, 
like the thing I'm I'm so interested in is like big moments in people's lives when it all when they when they found what their direction was in a way or their voice. Like, when did this idea form for you that you were going to talk about this music or be a part of getting it to the world? I was approached. My hometown in New Jersey, Madison, New Jersey, has three colleges in it. Even though it's never felt like a college town to me, they have three colleges. St. Elizabeth's, Fairleigh Dickinson, Drew University. And my the first thing I did was, because I was known throughout my high school as this music junkie, I wrote the music column in the high school newspaper. It's called Sharps and Flats. I'll never forget it. And I reviewed UFO mechanics, Sammy Hagar standing Hampton, um, you know, I think Aerosmith Rock in a Hard Place. And people knew me as this music guy even then. Then the, college, the uh, Drew University said, the students are going home in the summer. We'd like to keep our 10-watt on-campus radio station going through the summer. They came to my high school and said, do you have anybody that's into music that would like to do this? And immediately everybody pointed to me. Yeah. And I said, sure. I never expected and wanted to be on the radio. But I said, first thing out of my mouth, can I play what I want? And they said, yeah, we're at college. Sure, come on up. So that's how I learned and got interested in radio. But it wasn't about trying to have any sort of popularity or be some great broadcaster. It was just about, okay, now I can take these records I'm talking about in print and play them for people, even yeah. though maybe five people were listening. No, I mean, for people, it's funny. There are pe For people to whom, like everyone loves music, but to people who really love it, for, for who it really matters to, playing a record for somebody else for the, for that you love, it's like an incredibly sacred, special, amazing feeling, right? When you get to say to somebody, um, hey, and that Tiger's a Pantang album, <laughs> there's a, an extra, if you get the, the album, there's this extra track called Do It Good that's on its own little 10-inch. You got to hear this. And then watching them light up, there's a connection that's formed, and that must have like hardwired you in some way. Like some part of that w must have uh, really spoken to you. Totally. I mean, and it still does to this day. I'm about to go do my satellite radio show when I leave here, and I've got this black bag here, and guess what's in it? CDs. I still am a CD junkie, but I have new music in there, and I have old music in there, and I'm going to play that for a national audience at 6 o'clock today, and there's going to be people that are going to discover a new song or an old song they never knew about, because, they're, and they're going to hear me tell them about it. That is what I love doing. And did you realize when you did that job over the summer that you were able to communicate about this differently than you could about other things, or that people responded to it? Like, it's not a normal thing to... Be a bright person who's able to write. Most people can't write. Who's able to write and communicate that way? You've written two books, and back then you were writing. To quit college to but work I never in a considered. Store. I never considered myself a good writer. I, I I can get my ideas down on paper, but I'm I'm I don't I'm not like you. I mean, I can't. I'm not a writer, and and I'm you know probably horrific grammar and spelling. But I just I can get my stories out. Yeah, you can. It's another can, way to get my stories. You can communicate out. your like passion and belief yeah. about something on yeah. the page, and you do it. But uh, but what was the decision like to quit to work in a record store? The the story on Wikipedia, and I've heard you in your book, you tell it slightly differently. So I just want I don't know I, what's on Wikipedia. Well, I've never no, looked said at my that page. You took but... the job because it was across the street from the radio station. Yes, that's true. So and and you knew I'm going to try to work my way into this radio station from this record store, and I'm going to quit my my quit school so that I can try to end up on the. Well, radio. there's another. First of all, as far as college is concerned, I mean, I eked out of high school. And I went to a community college for a couple months, and the deal with my parents was like, look, if you apply yourself and you're into it, we'll, we'll pay for it. If not, and they knew that, that it would, I'm not a dumb guy, but it just wasn't for me. I just had this passion, this quest, this thing I wanted to do. So when I got interested in radio and music, I'm not a musician. I can't play a note. I wish I could. But I said, okay. I'm going to diversify as much as I can, and I'm going to try everything I can. So I didn't stop. What's important about this is I didn't stop doing any of the things. I built those. I added on. So, yes, I continued writing, and at that point I was writing for a, 
a paper in Jersey that still exists, thankfully, called The Aquarian. Um, I was doing some some reviews for them. I, I actually wrote, a, I grew up with Kerrang! Magazine. I actually wrote a couple things for them as a U.S. guy. I loved that magazine. Loved it. Worked in the record store. So he, here I am. I can write about the stuff I love. I can sell you the stuff I love when you come in my record store and say, hey, check this out and physically hand it to you. And then I can go and play you the stuff that I love on the weekend on my local radio station. And I made my first demo tape on a, a friend of mine in that I worked with at the record store had a pirate radio station in his basement in Staten Island. And he said to me, he was into radio for a different reason. He loved the processing on the voice and the big Harry Harrison, you know, all that stuff. I couldn't care less about that. But he said, come in and let's make this tape. So I made a demo tape, brought it to the station that I grew up with that still exists in New Jersey this day, DHA. And uh, the, the owners of the station were coming into the record store. And at that point, we're talking 83, and I'm selling Kill Em All by Metallica, yeah. Def Leppard Pyromania, Quiet Riot Metal Health. And at that point, they didn't know what to do with this stuff. And I said, let me come on and play it. So it was just this cumulative thing of, of, of pushing every boundary. And because I was one of the first guys to play Metallica, Kill Em All, Johnny Z from Megaforce, who signed them, who I used to buy records from him at his flea market in New Jersey, said, you took a chance on this band for me on the radio. If I can ever get him to break, I'm going to hire you to work at my record company. Three years later, in 86, he did. And that's funny, how I because got then that. by that time, Michael Alago had signed them to Elektra Records. I got there when Metallica was leaving. Right. They were leaving mm -hmm. to go to Elektra. Yes. And then when Alago, it's a little known thing, when Alago left Elektra, I was at Elektra and I became Metallica's A&R guy for a year. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. So, Cliff, because when I was a kid, like, when I was a kid, I was this metal freak, and I would go to all the metal shows, and uh, I would write letters, because my dad was in the record business, I knew course, yeah. what it was. Right. So, I would write to the managers of these bands, and, like, when Gary Barden was going to leave the Michael Shanker group, I wrote Cliff and Peter, who managed the Michael Shanker group, to say, like, uh, these are the singers, I had a whole theory <laughs> about this. Anyway, those guys remembered me, and even though I had gotten to Electric because of Tracy Chapman, when I got there, they called me and they said, uh, "You need to be. You understand this music. You should be Metallica's A&R person." So I ended up being on the. I would go out on the road with them, and uh, someday I'll get Lars in here and we'll talk about it. But so I was there just after you, basically after they'd finished "And Justice for All," but as the album was uh, coming out, I was there it's interesting for me because metal the success of metallica is what enabled megaforce to hire employees because it was really just johnny and his wife at that point and uh, and uh and maria the publicist but um enabled them to move out of their house get a staff get an office but the unfortunate thing is that that also meant that i didn't get a chance to actually work with them the first thing that i did when i got there actually was get Kill 'Em All released on CD. Because uh, at that point, CDs were just emerging and Kill 'Em All hadn't been out. If you have the Megaforce version of Kill 'Em All, there's a credit on the back that says CD preparation by Ed Trunk. That was my first thing. Oh, that's awesome. And, and that's, that was the first time your name was on an album? I think so. Well, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. Maybe as a credit. But I. But so when you go and work at that radio station, it's interesting just because it's a thing that I think is a real strength of yours and it's actually something I, I can't understand, which is... I don't know how somebody could love, let's say, High and Dry by Def Leppard, Kill 'Em All, Ride the Lightning, and then Metal Health. Those seem like three, and I, I love two of those three I love, but I, I, you seem to have like a very wide, uh, like a, you're willing to allow a lot in, it seems, and you can take each thing almost on its own terms. Like to me, the value judgment is so clear that High and Dry and the Metallica albums are just so much better than the Quiet Riot record because they mean something. They were like a, they meant something in a different way. But to you, it doesn't it doesn't hit you that way, huh? No, I mean, if you really know the history, because then when you look at Quiet Riot and uh -huh. you look at Metal Health. And you realize a couple things about that. Number one, metal record. You also realize that that band had been around forever. They were the West Coast version of Twisted Sister. You know, well, when Randy was Randy, in the band. Randy came from it. They couldn't get a deal. All the stuff that they went through. Um, but their first hit was a cover song. I mean, their first hit was a cover song. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, I know, I guess Van slade Halen's cover. first hit, well, it was a Slade cover. Yeah. But you think to you, the history, everything that it was about, you just, it didn't... Uh, Metal Health is, is not one of my favorite records of all time, but I get where it came from, and I know the origins of where it came from. There's a great documentary, by the way, coming out on Quiet Riot and Kevin's life, and it really was very revealing. But um, I like what Metal Health did more than what the record itself is. I like the fact that it knocked down so many doors uh, and and it became this... I mean, I worked in a record store and Metal Health came out. I mean, we couldn't even get the records on the shelf. We just sold them out of the box. But but I guess the question I want to ask you is about authenticity because those guys always seemed... Now, maybe this documentary will show... But when you compare them to Twisted, it was like D was singing for his life. And it, I would go see Twisted growing up and I believed every word you know, that D would say from the stage or that he would sing. Uh, and, you know, that guy wrote every word and every note. And then I compare it to to Quiet Right. And, yeah, I mean, Rudy was a great bass player. There were great things about that group. But uh, I don't know. It, it doesn't feel like it rises to the same level. I know there's a little bit. I think that it's, uh, I think it's definitely an East Coast, West Coast thing, though. I really do, because the West Coast people feel exactly the same way about Quiet Riot than we do about Twisted. Really? Yeah. You, oh, yeah. You wouldn't say the equivalent. I would have always thought the equivalent would be like Dave Medichetti's group, Y&T. I would have thought that would be like the West Coast, because they were San Francisco, right? Bay Area, yeah. yeah. They, they always felt like the comparison, because they but they were, never broke through to the level of Quiet Riot by any stretch, as far as having huge, a couple huge hits and you know, 10 million selling record. They never had that. Unfortunately, love Y&T, but they were never made that impact. But it, it's a really interesting parallel, and it's, it's interesting to talk about this, too, because in this Quiet Riot doc, D is featured prominently in it, talking about exactly this thing, that, that they were parallel. I mean, they were uh, that Quiet Riot was coming up in L.A. and selling huge clubs, couldn't get a record deal. Well, sure, and also, I mean, a lot of people thought, and then we'll move right off of this, but a lot of people thought, you know, the drum intro to We're Not Gonna Take It is exactly like the drum intro to the Quiet Riot hit. It's like the same, it's kind of like the same drum pattern. Yeah, it starts yeah, both yeah, those yeah, records, yeah. and Twisted well, came both, afterwards. Both very anthemic bands, too. You know, yeah, that's true. Sort of songs. All right, I, I, you you have uh, convinced me of why people like them, which I've never understood before. Though I'll never. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sitting here saying to you that uh, again. They're even maybe in my top thirty, forty bands uh, that I love. But I get where it comes from, and I, I, you know, I, I think that it's. Uh, if you look at the whole lineage of it, I mean, it, it's funny. The thing about Quiet Ride too is they hit. They they. They died as quick as they came on the scene. See, this is what's so amazing about you, though, man, is like that you're a businessman. I don't know. Do you consider yourself like you're a businessman? You're an entrepreneur. You're a fan. You're a host. Like, how do you because the fandom is still you still care so much about this. Like, I raised this and you really have a I know. A I don't know what's wrong with me. I mean, I care about it, too. Right. But you been... I don't know what's wrong with me, Brian. No, I mean, look, <laughs> we could do two hours on Quiet Riot and they're not even one of my favorite bands, but I respect them. And I know what the, I know the story. But no, I mean, listen, I, I and we all geeky music fans and, uh, you know, you and I could do it about Angel and I could I I, I think I could name. Almost every, I mean, I could, you'll name the one guy I can't name, but I could name uh, Jeffrea, Punky, Meadows, Frank, Domino, and Barry Brent, but I don't know right. who there the, were two bass players. I, I don't know the one I'm missing. Who am I missing? Well, you, you, didn't, get, you didn't hit either ba bass player. Well, they're the bass players. <laughs> Let's be honest. No, the two bass players, Felix Robinson yeah. and Mickey Jones. Okay, see, yeah, I missed yeah. the bass players. Yeah, yeah. Now, I don't think uh, out of... Uh, Every bass guys, player in the world is going to send you hate email. Right I love Dan. I can name a lot of bass players. <laughs> Believe me, tons of them. Danny Lilker. Uh, not even tons of bass players. But, uh, but the way... I mean, when I think about that stuff, it's a curio. I was obsessed with this when I was young, and I still remember, and it still matters to me. But what do you think it is that makes it still matter so much to you now? Do you still love it just as much? Yeah, yeah it's what I do. I mean, it's all I know. Here's the funny thing is people come up to me all the time. And they're like, I can't believe how much you know. And I'm, I'm only half joking when I say, yeah, but it's all I know. You know, it's it's my, my life. It's all I know. Uh, the big difference between when I was a kid and now with it is that now it is how I make a living. It is how I support my wife and two kids. It is how I pay the bills. I've been very fortunate 
to be able to make my passion my living as well. But that's where the line is a little bit different. Whereas when I was a kid uh, living at home, yeah, come do this job or do this voiceover or write these liner notes. No problem. I'll do it because I'm, I'm, I'm freaking out now, even though I'm freaking out, excited about it. It's, it's also, I have to find some way to monetize it because it's what I do for a living. A, A great example that just happened to me with that. Yeah. Joe Perry. I just told you how much Aerosmith. Sure. Yeah. In a couple of weeks, Joe is releasing his book and Joe's call. Joe called me personally and said, I want somebody to interview me for, for my book and the book launch in New York city. And I want somebody to moderate it and, and you're the guy, there's nobody else I want to do this from you. And uh, my immediate reaction was, and I'm going to do it. I said, Oh my God, Joe Perry, the guy had poster on my wall. I'm going to do it. Yeah, sure. And I am going to do it. But then after I hung up, uh, you know, uh, I have a friend that helps me out as, in a management capacity a little bit. He's like, what are you doing, man? Why don't you tell him to call me? And I could have talked to him, try to get you some money from the publisher. Right. It's Joe Perry. I got to do it. So there is that, that point where it's just like I should have taken a beat and said, well, okay, yeah, call Simon & Schuster and see if they'll at least kick me a couple bucks. But I don't think in those terms, and I have to sometimes because I do have to live as well. Yeah, it's hard when you're... There's a huge misconception amongst fans that if you're on radio and you're on TV in any capacity, you're a millionaire. <laughs> it's just not the truth. No, you're, but it, the, the trade-off is that you... Because right, you left the business side of the record business... Whether I don't know, you know, the uh, being uh, at a label or something like that to do this. The trade off for you is it seems like you don't it doesn't seem to me like you do that many things that you don't enjoy doing. You might get paid that you basically live the life that you want to live largely, maybe not to the to like the scale, but that you're the coming of the city to do your radio show. You would basically do it for free. Oh, <laughs> I almost do. I know. I'm saying <laughs> after, no, I mean, the, after parking in the toll, I almost do. I mean, <laughs> you know, your last two podcast episodes: Michael Anthony from Van Halen and Chickenfoot, and Ace Freely, your favorite of all time. You would have those conversations, basically, to have them. Yeah, I love. I love getting the story. Um, if there's anything that I have, I'm really in, kind of been told and really love hearing from people and are really appreciative about is people like my interviews. I I mean, I interviewed Dick Cavett uh, for TV back around 06 for VH1 Classic, and I have this on tape. i got to find it. Can you put it up? Is it up uh, anywhere? Wish, Viacom won't let the stuff go up on YouTube. They pull it down as soon as it goes up, but I, I have it. I have that. it. I'll get and, it. And you. I did it because Dick Cavett had just released a DVD of him interviewing John and Yoko. So he was promoting that. It came out through Shout Factory or something. So I interviewed Dick about that, and one of my one of my greatest moments was he says on camera without provocation we finished this interview for an hour, and he ends he goes I got to tell you something he says and I'm not saying this just to be nice because I don't need to say it you're good kid you're good you're really good at interviewing you're good and this is Dick Cavett I'm whoa and that really resonated with me and I'm really that's something I really pride myself on is doing. Asking the questions the fans want to know because I'm a fan at the end of the day. Well, yeah, but noticed... doing it in a way, yeah, there's a ta- a way to do it without pissing someone off when you go in a tough area. Well, I've noticed this interesting thing that you do, which is that um, you'll ask the artists questions that the fans want to know the answers to. But yes, you'll ask it respectfully. But then you will also, it seems to me, sometimes I've heard fans ask you questions. And I've heard you answer from, like, the band's perspective to explain to the fan, listen, you guys, yes, of course, uh, you want to see Y&T and Dave Manichetti tour. But he would lose money if he tried right. the tour. It's not that he's holding it. It's like you have this understanding, it seems like, uh, that you care a lot about the fans, but it seems you also care a lot about kind of advocating for the ba- for the bands, like the truth of what their experience is. Yeah, you ha- I I really I really find it very important to give it to people straight. So many people don't and I want to give it to people straight. And I do on my satellite radio show, one of the most things I enjoy the most about it, it's up to 50% a talk show and I take calls 
all the time, not a lot of times when I don't have a guest in there, me one-on-one, and I get calls from all over the country, lines are jammed, and there's a great point. Somebody will say to me, hey, how come this band never plays this market? It's very important being in the business to take a step back to the fan perspective. They don't know how the business works. They don't know that it's because there's no promoter there willing to give that band enough money. Again, they think, well, using YNT as an example, YNT released a couple records. Dave Menachetti could just get on his private jet and drop into Boise and do a gig. Why isn't he doing it? They don't get how the business works. So I don't. I, I try to give it everybody the straight story on. People say, why doesn't Triumph tour? Triumph has actually been very transparent about it, and they've said, we're not going to go do clubs. Right. Can they Can they tour in Canada? No, they're done. They, I mean, even Rick in Emmett, Canada, no, Rick Emmett, nobody Rick can. Emmett will come around and do some club shows here and there because he's into it, but the other guys, you know, they, they, I mean, they're, they're kind of done. So uh, we only have a little more time because I know you have to leave to go do your, do your show, um, but I have a few m- music questions that, that I want to ask you. One is... How much of this is nostalgia for you, whereas the bands that you love, you're interested in their new albums, and how do you go about finding new stuff that really gets you? Uh, do you think there is, in the hard rock world, the world that you care about, people making like vibrant, alive music that matters to them that you really dig? Now, yes. In the last year or two, I have been more encouraged and excited about new music and new bands than I have in a really long time. For me, a lot of what I do is rooted in the classic bands. Uh, And a lot of that is really because I have such limited time. I have three hours a week on my syndicated FM show. I have four hours a week on satellite. I have, and guess what? All the classic guys have no outlets for their new music either. I have TV when the channel decides they want to do the show. So, A lot of it is where my bread is buttered is with those classic guys, but I'm a huge believer in new music. I listen to it, and I'd say the number one criteria for me, if I like a band, is vocals. I have to like the singer. The singer doesn't have to be Freddie Mercury, but they have to have something in their voice that I like. One of the things I do not like, and it's why I don't really deal in the extreme metal, is what I call the cookie monster vocals. I can't, I just, I, I know some of that's very big and people like it. I, I need some sort of melody. I need something in the vocal. But that's never led you into other kinds of music, like into listening to fo- more folk rock music or songwriters, where there are guy- people who, you know, men and women sing great and write great tunes. No, because need I need a heavy too. guitar. You know what band I love, and it was one of my favorite songwriters, and it's not a metal What's band, that? is Soul Asylum. Oh, yeah, I love Dave a, Perner. I really, think Dave Perner yeah. is a brilliant songwriter. But I like Soul Asylum like their last three or four records for Columbia more than when they were the garagey punky band early on. Uh, I liked when they got more polished, like Misery from Let Your Dim Light Shine and Runaway Train and Somebody to Shove and Black right. Gold. And you like the, guitars records, and melodies. Those, But those are great banging yeah, guitars. Like, but Dave's a great uh, lyricist. I love his lyrics. And like a band, like some bands that have like the power and the energy of, of metal bands but sing about other stuff, like... The Pixies or the Replacements. Did those bands ever do anything for you? No, you know, I I, tur- I found out about the Replacements because they covered a Kiss song. That's hilarious. I found out about Nirvana because he because they covered a Kiss song early on. Right. So almost almost always traces back to. But like so, the Replacements that does nothing for you. The Replacements covered Black Diamond. You right. know, but but a, a song like I'll Be You by the Replacements, yeah. love it. I'll turn right. it on anytime I hear it. Uh, and, and you know, Dramarama, you right. know, anything, anything or something. I, I mean, I love that sort of stuff. So, yes, yeah, so that heavy guitar sort of stuff, as long as there's melody, I like. Who are the bands, so quickly, who are a couple of bands that are now that you really like? There's a band called King, spelled K-Y-N-G, and they're from a trio from Los Angeles, Young Kids. Second record just came out. Killer band, big riffs, great singing. Um, there's a band from L.A. also called Rival Sons, about four records out really getting big in England and Europe. They've been on the cover of magazines there and starting to work here as well. And then you and I agree that the one of the great um, unknown rock albums of all time is Fire Down Under Without by Riot. And then I would also say, I want to ask you about this. Uh, I loved, I know you worked with this band later, but the very first album by Raven, the one with Hell Patrol and For the Future, mm-hmm. uh, 
Do you agree that does that album stand up to this day, do you think? Yeah, they're playing tonight, actually. They're opening for Accept at the Gramercy, I just found out. Yeah, but they'll only play like one song from that album, <laughs> no, probably. Maybe not, I don't know. But uh, th- that's a band that was very much, very much overlooked in the whole new wave of British heavy metal uh, scene. And you know, I, the, the great Metallica, the, all, the Kill Em All, All for One tour, where yeah. they both co-headlined together. I mean, there's so many bands from that period. But yeah, I mean, Raven was... I mean, some people didn't like John's voice because it got a little screechy at times, but I, I, I respected what the, they did. The Gallagher brothers, but the good Gallagher brothers, not the comedian Gallagher brothers. You mean Oasis? No, the well, isn't what's John's name? In, in John, oh yeah, uh, by uh, who Gallagher. are the other Gallagher? Brothers? The comedians. Oh, you know those comedians? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gallagher and then his brother who imitates him. I didn't know he had him? a brother though. He has a brother who also steals his act and oh, goes on the road, <laughs> road as Gallagher. I thought you meant Nolan Liam no, from Oasis. No, so there's three sets of Which, them. by the way, there's a band, Oasis, that, uh, you know, th- some of the stuff they did, I loved. Even though it wasn't uh, considered hard rock. And the, yeah. Huge guitars, great melodies. Listen, man, I so appreciate you coming here. I promise they get you out of here, so I'm going to. Um, I got to say that... Uh, the Jets are the more noble team to root for <laughs> than the Giants. I also want to say that you are... I can't are, say anything. You're 1-1 one and, one and I'm 0-2 the time we're doing this. Are, you were a horrible <laughs> loss the last night. You uh, are... Uh, you know, you, you are so genuine and authentic when you talk about the stuff that you talk about. And you really have this incredible ability to bring people into it, you know, to make people care about what you care about. And uh, I got to say, radio stations uh, across the country... Uh, should recognize they're in a dying industry and they need you to help keep them alive and they should put you on their station. Well, I, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not here to be the savior, although one of the, the, the phrase that I hear probably daily, which really means a lot to me, is people just come up to me and say, hey man, you're keeping this alive, thank you, whether it be artists or fans. And I don't think of it like that. I, I'm a fan, I'm doing what I do, I'm doing what I love, I'm doing what's in my heart. Um, I truly care for this music and these bands, and I just am always looking for opportunities to grow it. And um, like I said, I'm, I'm lucky and blessed. I have what I have. I've worked my ass off for it. I've been consistent with it. Um, and and my biggest fight every day is just trying to find ways to take the next step and grow it. That's how it was when I was the kid at the college station 31 years ago, and that's how it is now. I'm still whether it be my TV stuff, my radio stuff, whatever. Okay, how can I find other believers, no matter what it is? And I'm open. One of the great things about the world we're in now is all this new media that's evolving, all this new thing. I still think that being on television, being on the radio, regular radio, is still really impactful. I think that a lot of people think it's getting a little diluted and there's too much. But there's I still, I still feel that. Now. But there's other ways. And if there's other ways to make that work too, great. I'm just, I'm just, uh, I'm just looking to keep fighting the well, fight. That's why your podcast is great. People should listen to what's your podcast called? It's just called the Eddie Trunk Podcast. It's, the Eddie Trunk Podcast is great. You can hear that on iTunes. You can find Eddie, be one of his two hundred thousand followers on Twitter <laughs> at Eddie Trunk. Yeah, yeah. You can find me at Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening, Eddie. Uh, we got to continue this conversation. Anytime, Thanks, man. man. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earbuds. Subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcast.